Hello and welcome to an Exigen podcast. Today we'll be diving into the study that led to the ACR released abstract, the multi-center validation of cell-bound complement activation products, a multi-analyte assay panel distinguishing SLE from primary fibromyalgia. Joining us is Tyler O'Malley, Senior Director of Clinical Affairs for Exigen. Over the past decade, Tyler has worked on numerous exogen studies, including the first clinical validation study, Putterman, published in 2014, and leading the project that led to the Capstone publication. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks, Clara. Happy to be here. So diving right in, can you give us a bit of background on yourself and what intrigues you about the topic of this particular abstract? Of course. So I've been with Exigen for about nine years now. And in that time, I've worked in various capacities, mostly relating to the clinical trials that we've run to validate the uh, cell-bound complement activation products, as well as the Avise lupus and Avise connective tissue disease tests that we offer commercially to rheumatologists across the United States. My expertise and focus is on validating the clinical usefulness of diagnostic tools as well as tools that can aid prognosis and the ongoing monitoring of patients suffering from autoimmune connective tissue diseases. So you're the perfect person to talk to when it comes to breaking this abstract down. Um, And let's actually dive right into that, starting with what need was this study addressing? What kind of prompted it? So when you take a look at this study, what you see is that we enrolled a, a large cohort of patients from a num- with a number of different types of autoimmune connective tissue diseases. So there's a population of lupus patients that were enrolled, a population of primary fibromyalgia patients, patients with chronic localized pain, primary Sjogren's syndrome, rheumatoid arthritis, as well as a control population of individuals who were not suffering from any autoimmune disease or, or what we call uh, normal healthy volunteers in the context of this study. So there's a broad diversity uh, represented here. And what we sought to do was to understand the performance characteristics or the usefulness of our CBCAPS technology, looking at CBCAPS uh, on the red blood cell, what we know as EC40 on the B lymphocytes or BC40, as well as on platelets, um, otherwise known as PC40. In addition, we evaluated the sensitivity uh, of the advised lupus algorithm, or as it's referred to in the abstract, the uh, MAP or multi-analyte panel score for diagnosing lupus, as well as evaluating the specificity of the MAP algorithm for lupus against uh, each and every one of those patients with other autoimmune connective tissue diseases, as well as the normal healthy population. And so with this, we were able to better understand in a large population of patients enrolled across 10 different clinical sites in the U.S., uh, the performance of, of each of these biomarkers. So before we get into the specifics of this abstract, let's look at it from a more generalized perspective. What differentiates this study from other studies that Exigen has conducted? Yeah, so one of the things that that is somewhat unique about this study is not just the the number of patients that were enrolled, which was approximately 415 patients at the time of this analysis, but we also had some unique patient populations represented here, such as the patients with chronic localized pain or CLP, uh, as well as the lo- rather large grouping of primary fibromyalgia s- syndrome patients, where there were nearly 157 fibromyalgia patients included in this analysis. 
So one thing that you mentioned when you gave a general overview of the study is that it really looks at fibromyalgia um, specifically in terms of a, a certain illness and then also chronic localized pain. Um, why were those two selected in particular? So first of all, it might help to help the, the listeners distinguish between uh, primary fibromyalgia syndrome and chronic localized pain. Yes. So one of the primary distinctions there is that fibromyalgia, at least according to the, uh, the diagnostic criteria that's been uh, published by the American College of Rheumatology, by definition, has features that include uh, widespread pain. In fact, in the diagnostic criteria, there's something known as the widespread pain index or WPI. And that combined with the symptom severity scale together when patients meet a particular criteria results in a diagnostic classification of fibromyalgia. Uh, in contrast, chronic localized pain is by definition localized. So as an example, someone who is suffering from chronic lower back pain, where their pain may be you know, equally debilitating as someone who has fibromyalgia, uh, the difference is that it's really just localized in the lower back as an example. So they, they really are distinct uh, patient populations and they're, they're both fairly prevalent in, in the population. So um, we know that millions of individuals suffer from primary fibromyalgia syndrome and uh, millions as well suffer from chronic localized pain. And so that is to say that these patients are intermingled with patients who are suffering from systemic autoimmune disorders like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, or Sjogren's syndrome. Uh, and so there is a need to be able to provide providers a set of biomarkers that can help them distinguish in, in addition to their clinical evaluations, the, the nature of, of what is driving patient symptoms and of course, determine the appropriate treatment course once di the diagnosis has been made. That makes a lot of sense. And that really explains the why. Now let's talk about the how um, and specifically the methodology. So how was the study conducted? So like I was saying before, this is actually a interim readout of a study that was done by Exogen. And what was done here was patients were enrolled after they were found to meet their respective diagnostic classification criteria. So I mentioned before the fibromyalgia criteria that's been established by ACR. The ACR has similarly established criteria for uh, lupus, for rheumatoid arthritis, for primary Sjogren's syndrome. And so the way that this looked was patients were recruited by rheumatologists across the U.S. Uh, if they met the respective classification criteria, we would collect a blood sample that would be shipped to Exogen, where we would perform the CBCAPS testing that I alluded to earlier, the autoantibody testing that goes into the advised lupus algorithm, as well as we measured complement C3 and C4, which are the sort of conventional approach to measuring complement activation that has been shown to be less sensitive than the CBCAPS technology that, that Exogen has, has brought forward in recent years. So patients were enrolled, we collected the blood and uh, performed these tests. And then one of the things we did in the analysis here, um, looking at the figures in the abstract, is that we reported on the sensitivity of each of these biomarkers in lupus, uh, as well as the specificity against these other autoimmune connective tissue disease patient populations, as well as the patients suffering from fibromyalgia or chronic localized pain. And in this analysis, we segmented or stratified patients according to whether they were ANA positive or ANA negative. ANA, as you may know, is a 
very, very sensitive biomarker. The recent studies have indicated as many as 41 million Americans uh, would uh, be considered ANA positive, which against the backdrop of no autoimmune symptoms may not uh, be much cause for concern. But if a patient is ANA positive and they are reporting some of the nonspecific overlapping symptoms that can be found in the context of early lupus, or even in primary fibromyalgia, that can present a bit of a challenge to uh, distinguish between what is a systemic autoimmune disease and what is uh, perhaps instead a pain disorder along the lines of, of fibromyalgia syndrome or chronic localized pain. Perfect. And that sets up the stage really nicely. And we're actually going to jump right to the conclusions, which are obviously the most interesting parts of these studies. So can you walk us through the conclusion of this particular study? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at the results and put them into context, what we find is that of the lupus population, the advised lupus algorithm performed remarkably well in that among the ANA positive lupus patients, uh, nearly 87% tested positive on the advised lupus algorithm. Similarly, we see that uh, when we look at the individual CD caps, take EC4D as an example, about 37% of the population was positive for EC4D when ANA positive, and over 40% of the ANA positive lupus population were positive for BC4D. When we take a look at the specificity of the advised lupus algorithm in terms of distinguishing lupus from primary fibromyalgia syndrome, the advised lupus algorithm was about 99% specific in making that distinction. Against normal healthy volunteers, it was about 97% specific. And against rheumatoid arthritis, about 98%. When we look at primary Sjogren's syndrome, we actually see that the specificity is a bit lower. It's about 60%. And this is something we've seen before and makes sense in the context that there is a degree of complement activation at play in, in the pathogenesis of primary Sjogren's syndrome. And so it's not unexpected to see some degree of positivity of, of the advised lupus algorithm, as well as the CV caps in the context of patients suffering from primary Sjogren's syndrome. And then as it relates to the chronic localized pain group, there too, we see that the test is, is highly specific for SLE, about 95%. So overall, this gives us a, a really good sense of not only how well the algorithm uh, that is fundamentally about distinguishing lupus from other diseases, is sensitive, it's often positive in the lupus population, it is rarely positive outside of lupus, with the notable exception of, of primary Sjogren's syndrome. Really cool. And actually staying on this topic, but diving into it a little bit more and going looping in something that you mentioned earlier, can you help me understand the layout of the results really in terms of the stratification of ANA positive versus ANA negative in the different disease groups? Yes. So ANA is often one of the reasons why someone might find themselves at, at a, a rheumatology office. Very often, you know, patients will present to their primary care physician, uh, describe, you know, certain symptoms that are affecting them. And, and oftentimes these symptoms aren't overly specific for one condition or the other. And so the tendency is for the primary care physician to order an ANA panel or maybe just an ANA itself, along with some standard labs, and very often a positive ANA against the backdrop of some of these ambiguous symptoms that could be autoimmune in nature is a ticket to the rheumatologist. And so in it's particularly in those cases when 
the patient presents and their symptoms are not clearly autoimmune in nature, but also not clearly something else, that that leads to further testing to clarify what the ultimate diagnosis might be in the context of the signs and symptoms that are that the patient's presenting with. And so with that in mind, we thought it was meaningful to segment the, the results along the lines of ANA such that one can see not just how, how well the markers perform in general in these populations, but also how those results might differ based on whether someone is ANA positive or not. Well, and that sets me up perfectly for my next question, <clears throat> which is really taking this and then looking at its application. What impact does this have on clinicians and their patients? Well, this is further evidence of what has been shown in other studies. You referenced the Putterman study. It was published back in 2014. It, it demonstrates that, you know, when you look at the advised lupus algorithm, not just on its own, but in comparison to uh, the existing testing options that, that are out there, say, for example, complement C3 and C4, you see a big difference in sensitivity. Um, that is to say, how well these tests actually test a positive in the context of someone who actually has the disease. There, there's a big differential there where the advised lupus algorithm is almost 90% sensitive in the context of ANA positive lupus, which is anywhere from uh, 70 or 60 to 70% more sensitive than the uh, complement proteins based on this data. And at the same time, the advised lupus algorithm is capturing more lupus patients uh, while also remaining highly specific. So still allowing for that dis distinction from patients who might be suffering from other autoimmune diseases or pain conditions or potentially presenting as a, as a healthy individual as well. Yeah, that's definitely impactful for the patients and then helps streamline the process for the providers. So on both ends, that's just a huge benefit. Um, and Tyler, we've walked through this study and the reasons for it and the conclusions. What was the most impactful takeaway of the study, in your opinion? The, the, I mean, the most impactful thing is, like I was referencing before, you know, with results, with study results, consistency matters. And at this point in the journey with the, the CBCAPS technology, the advised lupus algorithm, we're nearly 10 years in, well, we're over 10 years into this, I should say. And uh, what we have seen consistently when we engage different providers in different parts of the country and have them enroll patients with lupus and other diseases is, is a singular message. And that is that the advised lupus algorithm stands above the rest in terms of its ability to be a necessary tool to the provider to aid them in their clinical evaluations to come to the, the right conclusion about a patient's diagnosis sooner. And that is, as you said, it's incredibly meaningful to patients and their families and the people that care for them. Because at the end of the day, lupus, like many of these other diseases, are chronic lifelong conditions. And in many cases, there aren't cures. There, there are merely treatments. There are ways to affect the disease, to help the individual suffering from them uh, manage their disease. And one of the things that is consistently the case when you look at the research, the best practices in treating these conditions, that the sooner patients are treated and the less time patients spend in periods of, of high inflammation, uh, the better off their outcomes tend to be. So there really is an urgency to get people answers, um, not just for the psychological impact that can have on someone who's 
suffering from a condition and they don't really understand why or, or even have a name for it. But it's also meaningful in terms of their actual clinical outcomes, that time spent languishing in high disease activity does have a real cost to it. And in some of these conditions, the impact can be irreversible. So to the extent that, that we as an organization can add to the research, we can provide tools to the physicians uh, taking care of these patients. It's, it's an essential mission we have. And we really hope that at the end of the day, some patients who, who might have otherwise had a more difficult, a difficult course with their disease, um, that we can affect that in some way, in a positive way, and help people reclaim some of their quality of life to ensure that these, these diagnoses, while they may be scary and they may be very hard to, to understand when, when they're first made, that hopefully we can empower folks to take control of their disease and, and make the best of it that they possibly can with their provider's help. I could not agree more. And I think that that is the perfect place to end this episode. Tyler, thank you so much for coming on and for your time and your insights on this. Uh, Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Claire. I really enjoyed the conversation. You have been listening to Exigen's podcast. For more information about Exigen, please visit the website at www.exigen.com.